Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada. Today, we continue our series, The Death and Resurrection of Jesus. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew 26, 6 to 16, as Dr. Neufeld brings us a message titled, The Question of Money. It's often the case that how we spend and save money, well, especially, you know, in a marriage or in a family, it becomes a testy affair. I mean, the same's true between partners in business. It's also true in church. I mean, more than one congregational meeting has become disorderly over the matter of the budget for the coming year. One person gets up and asks, you know, how much money are we spending on our own needs and how much are we spending on missions and care for the poor? And, and usually the person asking that question has already worked out the percentages. I mean, what percent are we spending on our building, our salaries, our administration and missions? Well, you get the idea, whether it's in business or in government or in families or in church, it's not just how much money we have, it's how we're spending it and investing it. So it might seem strange that in this series in which we're examining the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, that we seem, as it were, to pause and seemingly take a detour from the facts at hand, you know, the sufferings of our Lord, and then we suddenly talk about money. But as we're going to see, it's not a detour at all. Think about how often we become the people we are by virtue of our connection with money. People will sometimes abandon all their virtue for the sake of money. That's not news. You and I know that. Perhaps even now, as you're listening to my voice, and I'm describing you, and you aren't proud of it, but you've made some key decisions that required you to relax your moral standards for money. I hope I'm not giving you any comfort by stating that you're not the first person to have done that. Many have done it before you. You're not alone. But in saying that, my hope is that you might ask yourself, what's the true cost of that decision? Today, we're going to be looking at two people who made key money decisions. One's Mary, who on one single day spent a great deal of money. And the other is Judas, who on one single day earned some money. You know, in both cases, it was about money and morality. We're going to examine that. Now, those who study the book of Matthew soon realize that Matthew doesn't arrange the material in his book in an exact chronological order. You know, instead, Matthew arranges matters thematically, topically, following a rough chronology. Matthew thinks there's, there's something to learn about the life and the teaching and the death and the resurrection of Jesus if we examine some key events, placing them in a certain order for the sake of emphasis. And so as we studied Matthew chapter 26, we saw you know, that Matthew began by quoting Jesus. The Passover meal, he said, was only two days away. So that event happened on a Tuesday. But when we come to Matthew 26, verse 6, we notice that it begins now when Jesus was at Bethany and then describes the details, and we wonder about when that was. Well, we have John's gospel, and in John chapter 12, we find that the event that Matthew's describing happened, in fact, on the previous Saturday, three days earlier. I hope you see it. Matthew is bringing together events that happened near one another, and he's placing them next to each other for the sake of emphasis. So let's see what Matthew is emphasizing. You're going to remember that as chapter 26 began, we hear that God had planned that the crucifixion of Jesus would happen very quickly, but that the chief priests and elders had planned to allow the Passover celebration to end, and then after everyone was gone, they'd murder Jesus secretly. So now Matthew does a flashback, if you will. 
And he tells us that all along the matter was in God's hands, not in the hands of the religious leaders. Certain events were already taking shape so that things were already out of control, even though the religious teachers didn't know it. And those matters had to do with money. So let's begin to read Matthew 26, verses 6 to 13. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. You know, on the Saturday before Palm Sunday, Jesus was at the home of a man named Simon the leper. Since the Mosaic law commanded that lepers would have to be kept outside the camp, well, we've got to assume that this man had been healed by Jesus some time before. But he had retained the name Simon the leper, probably as a testimony to the work of grace that Jesus had done to him. We also know from John that Martha served the dinner and that Lazarus, her brother, was also there. And you'll remember that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And so, you know, it must have been quite a gathering. You know, Jesus and his 12 disciples are there, including, you know, those two other men, Lazarus and Simon the leper. And Simon the leper opened his house. Martha took care of the dinner. You know, Martha's role was, you know, completely in keeping with the customs of village life in those days. And John tells us a large crowd learned of that amazing meal, and they all crowded into Bethany, hoping to catch a glimpse of Jesus and the two men, you know, one who had been cured of leprosy and the other who had been delivered from death. There's a lot to see there. And furthermore, we know that the enthusiasm for Jesus was growing so that, you know, the religious leaders who had heard about this feast, they were seriously concerned. The number of believers in Jesus was growing. And of course, as we know, as the enthusiasm had reached a peak, the very next day, Jesus would ride into Jerusalem to the adulation of the crowd who were welcoming him as their Messiah. But let's get back to Matthew's account. Fifteen men are reclining at the table. Remember, they don't sit on chairs. They sit on the ground. And a woman comes up behind Jesus. And it's not shocking. We know from John the woman is Mary. She's the sister of Martha and Lazarus. She's been there the entire time. And she approaches Jesus. In her hand, there's an alabaster jar of expensive ointment. Matthew says it was precious. According to John 12, verse 3, its worth was 300 denarii. That would be equivalent to a year's salary of the average working man at that time. And that was a lot of money. You know, in many cases, that would serve as a backup should things go wrong in someone's life. So think about it. What would inspire someone to do what Mary does? John says the liquid was pure nard, which came from a plant native to India. It was in a thick-necked alabaster jar in which you'd have to snap off the neck. Effectively, you'd break the bottle, and immediately the smell would have gone through the room. And according to Matthew, she poured it onto Jesus' head. But according to John, she actually anointed his feet. Now, I don't think there's a conflict between those two accounts because Mark indicates that the perfume was all over Jesus' body, his, his head, his neck, running down his shoulders, and then with what was left, she anoints his feet. 
Now, as we've mentioned, that was an extravagant act, very costly. It caught everyone by surprise. Indeed, every face around the table stared at her in shock. Indeed, the shock is a, well, that's a mild word for it. Matthew uses a different word. They were indignant. We know from John that Judas was especially indignant. Matthew doesn't mention that part, but we're going to contrast with Judas in a little while. But for now, Matthew wants to assure us that everyone in the room was outraged. So what were they outraged about? Why should they suddenly get involved in her act of devotion to Jesus? I mean, she made a choice as to what to do with the family treasure, and perhaps they should have marveled rather than express outrage. But outrage is what they felt. I mean, this expensive jar, if Mary wanted to get rid of it, she should have given it to the poor. So it seems to me the disciples are fairly hypocritical here. Are they really implying that Mary cares nothing about the poor and that she only spends money on things that don't matter? I mean, step back for a moment and just think about who she is, along with her sister Martha and the well-established habit they had of showing hospitality to Jesus and his disciples whenever they were in their area. She would have a part of feeding them, putting them up for the night, providing for their needs. I mean, considering that Jesus had no place to lay his head, Jesus himself was counted among the poor. She was taking care of him. And another matter, it seems outrageous that these 12 disciples should criticize the one who was hosting them and their friends. She's a part of bearing the cost of feeding them. I mean, who would not stop and consider that perhaps rather than criticizing and second-guessing her. Perhaps they should have been thankful for her sacrificial act of service to them. Notice that Jesus rushes to her defense. Why do you trouble this woman, he asks. Are you really concerned about the poor? Are their troubles really weighing on your mind right now? Or are you fixated on only one thing? Are you fixated on money? It's a question for all of us. It's an absolute honor to share that this month, our friends at Laugh Again are celebrating their 10th anniversary. A decade of wisdom-packed stories knit together with family-friendly humor that always directs hearts and eyes back to Jesus. If you haven't already, head over to laughagain.ca and dive into the wide array of resources available, all which provide encouragement in your walk with Jesus. Tune in to Phil's popular Take 5 series, or check out resources like Four Minutes for Frazzled Families, a devotional booklet for the whole family. Visit laughagain.ca, and when you're there, consider blessing Laugh Again with a financial gift to help pave the way for 10 more years of sharing hope and joy in your walk with Jesus. It's amazing to think that pouring out this flask of, you know, expensive and costly perfume, that Mary would trigger such a negative response. It seemed like a waste to the disciples. It could have been given to the poor. Let's look at Jesus' response. Indeed, he has three responses. Do you notice them? The first is found in verse 10, is that what she has done is a beautiful thing, he says. Now that phrase, beautiful thing, I think, can be literally translated as a good work. She's done a good work to me, says Jesus. And it's interesting wording because Matthew frequently draws attention to this matter of good works. 
Matthew 5:16 records Jesus as saying, "In the same way, let your light so shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven." Do good works, says Jesus, and make sure that others see your good works so that when you're doing them, they give glory to God. And here, that's what Mary is doing, a good work, glorifying God and displaying her act of devotion in front of the disciples. It's fascinating, you know. Even today, people still have the attitude of the disciples. If we're extravagant in worship, are we really doing well, some people ask. You know, I'm reminded of David. You know, he comes to build an altar at the threshing floor of a man named Aruana the Jebusite. You're going to remember God had sent a plague on Jerusalem. And David sees an angel with a sword drawn in his hand. It's stretched out over Jerusalem. David wants to build an altar to assuage the anger of God. And Aruana tells David, look here, I give you my land and my threshing floor. Build the altar, appeal to God, save Jerusalem. But David insists on paying the full price for the land. He says, I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. That is to say, I will sacrifice and worship and I will plead with God for mercy, but I'm not going to do this unless it's expensive to me, unless it costs me something. That's a good lesson to learn. Worship is intended to be costly. It's intended to be expensive. Mary knows that. In her act of devotion to Jesus, she spends her life savings and says, Jesus, she has done a good work. It brings glory to God that worship is that costly. Who can criticize that? Now, the second response that Jesus gives is found in verse 11. He says, you will always have the poor with you but you will not always have me. Now, regarding the poor, Jesus is not suggesting that we neglect them. I mean, over and over again, he showed compassion to the poor. Matthew 5, verse 7, he taught, blessed are the merciful. I mean, mercy is something that's exhibited to those who have nothing. And in Matthew chapter 6, he taught that when we give to the needy, for he was insisting that we should give to the needy, that we don't sound the trumpet the way the hypocrites do, but that we give for the sake of the poor and not for the sake of our reputation. Jesus can't be faulted with having a cavalier attitude towards the poor. But he drew attention to the greatest thing. Right now, while he was eating in the home of Simon, less than a week away from his crucifixion, he was still with them. How precious was that? And that brings us to the matter of giving to that which is most precious. Look at Jesus' third response, and this is the most shocking one, verse 12. He says that Mary did this to prepare him for his burial. You know, Jesus looked upon this as his burial perfume. And Jesus is very aware that in a few days he's going to be crucified, but the disciples are still very unaware. Mary must have been aware that Jesus was in great danger. I mean, the most powerful men in the nation were strongly opposing him. She must have believed that he was in danger of being put to death. She would have also been aware that if he were to die the death of a criminal, there would be no customary anointing of his body. And she was showing devotion to him before the crowds would show up, before they would hurl insults at him, before they would scorn him, and before they would crucify him between two criminals. Mary was anointing his body, showing devotion. And then for emphasis, Jesus adds a word. This precious act of anointing his body for burial must never be forgotten. 
Only she seemed to be aware of the threat that Jesus was under. And because of that, she spent everything that she had ever saved up so that his body would be treated with the dignity that was befitting the Son of God. What do you make of that? Is this extravagant act, this use of her money, to show glory and honor to Jesus, is this a waste or is it not? Now think about yourself. If you give extravagantly for the glory of Jesus, for missions, for the local church should flourish so that Christ's name is honored in the community and his name is broadcast as widely as possible, do you think that's a waste of your money? Or should you keep every bit of your extra funds and not spend them so foolishly? See, Mary's example reminds us of what is valued by God. But as I've said, this is not just a story about Mary, it's a story about Jesus. Because of Matthew's arrangement of his material, he wants us next to focus on Judas and contrast Judas with Mary. Well, let's step back for a moment and read John 12, 4-6. There we read, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he was about to betray him, said, Why has the ointment not been sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Yeah, Judas was a thief. He loved money, not the way Mary did, who would use money for the glory of Jesus. Judas loved money for what he could get. And stealing from the offering plate, that was just his style. But Matthew is not going to tell us about Judas' thievery. Rather, he's going to tell us about Judas' greed and how far that went. So let's read Matthew 26, 14 to 16. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now notice how Matthew is contrasting the attitude of Mary with Jesus. It's the extravagance of Mary, and it's the greed of Judas. You know, perhaps, I don't know why Judas did it. Maybe it was the talk of dying. Maybe it's the talk of being prepared for burial. Maybe it's the talk of going to Jerusalem to suffer. I mean, all of that filled Judas with anger. I mean, he had been in it for the riches. I mean, Jesus was the Messiah. And what would that mean for him? Perhaps the riches he dreamt of would never be materialized. But one thing must not be missed. It's not that the chief priests, and that refers, of course, to Annas and to his son-in-law, Caiaphas. It was not that they recruited Judas. Instead, Judas sought them out, and he even took the initiative. What will you give me, he asks, if I betray him? Give me enough money to make it worth my while. Now, we who read this text, well, we know that it was God's foreordained plan that Jesus would not be murdered after the Passover, but rather that he would be crucified during Passover. Now, how long did it take after this meal for Judas to find the high priest? Well, we don't actually know. I mean, as we have seen, Matthew is not a tight chronological account. But it's possible that Judas left as quickly as he could. He was done with following Jesus, and so perhaps he went on, you know, that very evening and went into Jerusalem, but, you know, perhaps also he went on Tuesday when all the controversies were going on in Jerusalem. We don't know exactly the timing, but we notice that they came to an agreement, 30 pieces of silver. I mean, how much is that? Well, here's the answer. It's not as big an amount as you might think. 
In the Old Testament, 30 pieces of silver, according to Exodus 21, verse 32, well, that's the amount an owner of an ox paid if his ox gored a slave to death. Now, others have pointed out Zechariah 11, verse 12, in which Zechariah was paid an inadequate sum of money and he threw it to the potter. Well, whatever the value was of the 30 pieces of silver at the most, it would have been equivalent somewhere around four months of a day laborer's wages. Now, that might seem like quite a lot, but it was not as much as Mary spent. And so Judas sold out cheap and he got the money instantly. But once he accepted the money that chief priest had him, he was obligated. He'd struck a bargain. And now there was no way back. He was indebted to fulfill his side of the bargain. Sometime in the future, the religious leaders were prepared to murder Jesus, and Judas was their man on the inside, and he had to signal them when Jesus was out of sight of the public so that they could murder him privately. Look at the contrast. One woman spends a year's wages to glorify Jesus. The other gets four months' wages to be a part of betraying Jesus and to murder him. It's all about money. And the strange thing in that scenario is it's still being played out that way today. It's this question. How much will you sacrifice for the glory of Jesus? Or you might have to answer this question. How many moral codes are you willing to break so that you can get the money that you want. Well, you do well if Mary and not Judas is your hero. Thanks, John. Let me ask you, it's a straightforward question. What's at the root of our struggle with giving? Well, you know, I like to say that there are a lot of nerve endings in our wallet. <laughs> and, uh, you know, some people think that, you know, to give, it feels like an amputation. Um, so let me, let me say this. Um, I, I think the problem that some of us have with giving is because we have not yet come to terms with the fact that we don't actually own anything. I mean, God owns everything. The earth is his. Our life is his. Stuff in our bank account is his. He is free to do with our things, even uh, what we call our things, as he wills. And so when he calls us to willingly give, to become actively involved in, you know, the, the ministry that he's given us, um, then, you know, we need to respond by saying, how can this be a hardship? Um, it's, I'm not giving anything that actually belongs to me. It was his in the first place. And he'll take it in the end uh, because I will ha- be left with nothing. So uh, we need to accept that. Thanks so much, John. And remember to come back again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Death and Resurrection of Jesus right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Few verses encapsulate the message of the gospel better than John 3.16. It's been memorized, put on posters, painted at the front of churches, and even waved from end zones at football games. But perhaps you've never heard an exposition of this great verse as in-depth as the one Dr. John offers in his new five-message series, John 3.16. With two hours of audio dedicated to unpacking exactly what each component of this verse means for the believer, I think this series may just completely enhance and renew your appreciation for the depth of truth found in this verse. To that end, 
Back to the Bible Canada is offering the John 3.16 series on CD for free during the month of March. So take advantage of this limited time offer and call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca to request your free CD series today.